<sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you. American democracy is in worse shape than we thought. Just take a look at the Republican Party. Republicans control 23. They have total control of 23 states now. And they are embracing conspiracy theories and moving forward with legislation that dismiss the idea of democracy and replace it with the idea of oligarchy, essentially, of single-party rule, of rule by the rich. And you combine that with six right-wing cranks on the Supreme Court, put there by, in several cases, what I consider to be illegitimate presidents, and what you have is a, is a recipe for a disaster for the world's largest, most prominent, and wealthiest, and most powerful democracy. And that is a crisis of democracy. This crisis of democracy is really deep in this country right now. It has seized the Republican Party. It has seized the Republican base. Now, the good news is the Republican base seems to be shrinking there was a study just published today out of Maricopa County, out of, out of Arizona, but uh, you know, looking at the actual votes that were reported and what they found was about 75,000 people who voted for Trump in 2016 voted in 2020, but they didn't vote for Trump. They either voted for Biden or they voted down ticket for a whole bunch of Republicans and they did not vote in the presidential race. In other words, 75,000 roughly people in Arizona, Republicans in Arizona, just decided enough. We've heard about his raping women. Uh, we've seen him corrupting our government. He's giving away federal monuments to mining companies. He's stripping our public lands. He's trying to destroy Social Security and Medicare. He's trying to gut Obamacare. He's trying to undo the regulations in banking, you know, to prevent another 2008 Bush crash. He's giving away our secrets to foreign countries that may be hostile to us. He is sucking up to foreign oligarchs. He tried to get in bed with foreign oligarchs in Ukraine to steal the election. 
again after having gotten help from Russia in 2016 to steal that election? There were 75,000 Republicans in Arizona who said, no, not going to vote for this guy again. And that's why he lost Arizona. It wasn't the Democratic surge. It was Republicans saying, don't like this guy. I guess that's good news and bad news. You know, the, the good news is we understand what happened. The bad news is next time around, the candidate probably won't be Trump. It'll probably be somebody a whole lot slicker and a whole lot smarter and a whole lot more dedicated to real fascism rather than just, you know, Trump being dedicated to a personality cult, essentially. But it's not just that they keep getting these kind of Kevin McCarthy dim bulb politicians. And, uh, you know, I, I don't know enough about Greg Abbott to know if he's as frankly stupid as Kevin McCarthy. Kevin McCarthy is actually just not that bright. I mean, I know people who know Kevin McCarthy. He's just not that bright. And that's fairly common in the Republican Party. You get people who you teach them a couple of good lines that they can parrot and you know, they don't really have an interest in digging deep into policy, and they really don't want to understand how governments work and things like that. Just, just say a few things that sound good, and we'll get elected, and we'll get power. And, you know, when we leave office, we'll get a million-dollar-a-year job at some corporation that supports Republicans. And, yeah, it's pretty straightforward stuff. But it's destroying our country. And then you've got these guys who are being literally making millions of dollars a year these right-wing talk show hosts who are being subsidized. I mean, you know, Politico, uh, Ken Vogel, the, the reporter, outed, this was back in 2015, as I recall. Uh, Politico did a story about how, you know, Limbaugh was getting, I think it was $2 million a year from, from the Heritage Foundation. Sean Hannity was getting a million dollars a year from them. That, you know, these right-wing hosts were being subsidized by these giant right-wing foundations. Well, somebody's crossing your palm with two million bucks a year. Do you think it might have some influence on what you put on the air and what you have to say? There is, by the way, no such thing on the left. This program gets not one penny from anybody other. I mean, we, on the commercial side, we have advertisers. But, you know, I'm not sucking up to them. I, I, you know, we, we, in fact, there are some advertisers that we simply won't carry. So, you know, it's, it's pretty straightforward stuff, I think, that the Republican Party has become corrupted. American politics have, been corrupt, have become corrupted by big money. And that it was the Supreme Court that opened the door to that after Lewis Powell got put on the Supreme Court in 72. The, the court in 76 and 78 legalized political bribery with their Buckley and, and Bellotti decisions. And that brought us an ocean, a tsunami of money into the Republican Party that, that floated Ronald Reagan into the White House in 1980. And then in 2010, the Supreme Court doubled down on and expanded Buckley and Bellotti. And then in 2013, McCutcheon even expanded that. There used to be a limit on how many politicians an individual billionaire could own. They blew up that limit. So now you've got the entire, basically the entire Republican Party, including state at the state level. I mean, Republicans here in Oregon getting money and getting support, financial support from right-wing groups, right-wing foundations, helping them get elected. And that corruption, and, and, and what's the message that they're delivering? Oh, you know, the people don't matter. 
Social Security is, that's socialism. Get rid of that. Get rid of Medicare. Get rid of food stamps. Get rid of unemployment benefits. Get rid of regulation of corporations that keeps the air clean and the water clean. You don't need that stuff. We need more profit in our corporations, don't you know? So that they can cycle some of that money back into the Republican Party. It has become this evil thing. My friends, we have to fight back. We have to speak the truth. Trump's paramilitary bullies have basically turned Republicans into either bullies themselves, or as brought out the the bully base, or they've left the rest of the Republican Party just scared out of their minds, shall we say. Uh, I use a somewhat less uh, appropriate word, but uh, I was quoting Meghan McCain, actually. This was back about uh, 11, 12 years ago. Meghan McCain was talking about this war that seemed to be emerging inside the Republican Party. And, uh, you know, I think that she basically nailed it. She said, I think we're seeing a war brewing in the Republican Party, but it is not between us and the Democrats. Most of the old school Republicans are scared. And then she used that word, shall we say, crapless, of that future. That was Meghan McCain in 2009. And now you've got Liz Cheney saying that she knew that there were Republicans who wanted to vote to impeach Donald Trump during the last impeachment hearing, where she voted to impeach Donald Trump. And those Republicans wanted to vote to impeach Donald Trump, but, and I quote Liz Cheney, they were afraid for their own security and afraid for their lives. For their lives. I mean, you go back to January 6th, you had these traitors storming the U.S. Capitol, bringing a gallows to hang the vice president of the United States, and another group of them searching the Capitol building, apparently with the help of a sitting member of Congress telling them where the Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi, was so that they could, quote, put a bullet in her forehead end quote. So I think Liz Cheney is probably right when she says that her colleagues are scared for their lives. You, you have to wonder about Congressman Clyde, right? The guy from Georgia who read this statement, and I would sure like to know who wrote that statement that he read, who read this statement a couple days ago, you know, before Congress, it's been played ad infinitum on MSNBC. I don't I'm assuming it's popping up on CNN and other news sources as well, where he said, if you didn't know otherwise, you know, watching the protesters walk between the stanchions through the statuary hall on their way to the Capitol, you would have thought it was just another tourist day, right? Just another normal tour in the Capitol building. Right, (laughs) yeah. Where 140 cops end up in the hospital where five people are dead. Ultimately, seven people are dead, three of them police officers. Just another day. Just, you know, average stuff. And you see this and and you have to wonder, you know, what's going on with the Republican Party? Well, what's going on is we have this movement toward fascism and fascism is 
basically driven by bullies. These people are authoritarians. Authoritarians, and you know, is is the psychology word for bullies, right? Or you know, a fancy word for it. Jeff Duncan, he's the Republican lieutenant governor for the state of Georgia, the number two guy under Brian Kemp, the governor. He was on Morning Joe, and he said he's not going to seek re-election. And they asked him why, and he said, and I quote. This is over at HartmanReport.com if you want to get any of these original quotes or links to the articles. I've got them all in there. No ads, no cost. Anyhow, he says, look, I've got three kids, three boys, 19, 15, 10. I'm married to my high school sweetheart. These have been some very interesting times for us. I'm proud to have them on my team. They've been very supportive. But, you know, he's talking about his family. But when you receive death threats from hundreds of Republicans from around the country, that's a problem when you're only sitting there telling the truth. End of quote. This is what's going on. I mean, for over a hundred years, authoritarians have tried to destroy democracy. The largest and most well-known of the authoritarian anti-democracy groups in America was called the Klan, the Ku Klux Klan. Today, they go by a, a half a dozen or a dozen different names, but they're basically the Klan. These are the paramilitary shock troops now of the 21st century. The Klan was the 20th century in the late 19th century. Back in the 1970s and, and throughout the 1980s, for example, and, and, and then, you know, these people operate by intimidations and threats. Back in the late 70s, the early 80s, the most popular talk show host in America was a guy named Alan Berg. They made a movie about him called Talk Radio. It's been 10, 15 years and he was a progressive. He was the number one talk show host in America. He was doing a show out of a station in Denver that blew a signal into 29 states. And on June 18th, 1984, a couple of skinheads walked up to him in the parking lot of his radio station and shot him to death. That was June 18th of 84. October 14th of 84, June, July, August, September, October, five months later, a guy named Rush Limbaugh debuts with a right-wing talk show that soon replaces Alan Berg regionally and then, you know, by 87 nationally and now, you know, has, has become, until his recent death, the nation's most outspoken bully. I mean, this is, bullying is what these people are all about. You've got the forced pregnancy bullies who stand outside, you know, family planning clinics and yell and scream at, at women that they think might be getting abortions or even birth control. As we speak, the Republican Party is trying to enlist 10,000 so-called poll watchers, thugs who will intimidate suspicious people who want to vote. And you and I both know what suspicious people means to Republicans. If you've ever tried to engage a right winger on the, you know, in any kind of social media, you know what I'm how quickly it devolves into bullying and name calling. You've got these right-wing paramilitary groups who are wearing army-style camouflage and, and carrying around giant weapons, partly to make up for their own insecurities, but also to enhance their ability to, uh, to bully people. I mean, they've tried mass murder as a bullying technique. Tim McVeigh in Oklahoma City. When this white supremacist kid uh, drives up to Wisconsin, his mother drives him up to Wisconsin and he murders two Black Lives Matter protesters Republican bullies across the country raised literally millions of dollars for him. School boards are facing these bullies. 
all across the country. When Barack Obama decided to adopt Mitt Romney's plan for Massachusetts health care, Romney care, and call it the Affordable Care Act, you had these right-wing bullies showing up at town hall meetings that members of Congress are just trying to give people information. Oh, no, we're going to shout you down. Anthony Fauci now has to have a private security detail for his children because of death threats. Right-wing bullies in Michigan put together a plan to kidnap the Democratic governor, Gretchen Whitmer, and haul her off for a phony trial and execution on television. Donald Trump said that he would pay the legal fees of any bullies in his audience who injured people who were protesting against him. His wife wore a shirt to go down to look at the children he put in cages that said, I really don't care, do you? Bullies? Mitch McConnell bullied Barack Obama, refused for a whole year to even consider Merrick Garland. Defeating bullies is more art than science. And yes, there's the kick them in the nuts school. The way that you defeat a bully is by beating them, crushing them. Just to finish up this rant, you know, the things that the Democrats can do. Number one, Democrats can end the filibuster and then pass legislation that actually puts America back together. And if Joe Manchin and Kristen Sinema are standing in the way of ending the filibuster, Chuck Schumer needs to either step up and do some bullying of his own or uh, probably more ideally use some carrots. There are things they want. There are things that Joe Manchin wants. There are things that Kristen Sinema wants that Chuck Schumer can give them. I mean, this is, you know, Lyndon Johnson was the master of this. And if Schumer can't whip his caucus, if he can't get those senators, all of them, completely in line with either ending the filibuster or, frankly, I think what might even be better. I've, I've written several op-eds on this. You can find them at HartmanReport.com, um, where you, you simply say, yeah, as long as you've got 40 members on the floor and somebody is talking, we will suspend activity of the Senate. But the minute you stop talking, or the minute you drop below 40 people on the floor, the filibuster is over and we're going to hold a vote. The, I call it the Jimmy Stewart filibuster. So come on, Chuck, you can pull this off. You can do this. So that's step one, number one. Number two, the Supreme Court. We had a caller about this yesterday. I wrote an entire book about this, The Hidden History of the Supreme Court and the Betrayal of America. Back in the 1980s when John Roberts worked for, for Ronald Reagan, John Roberts wrote this long memo. Let me back it up a little bit. Reagan hired Roberts with one specific job. The Republican Party had come to power and there was outrage among the Republican base about two Supreme Court decisions. The 1954 Brown versus Board decision that integrated public schools. And the 1973 Roe v. Wade decision that, gave, that, that struck down state laws against abortion all across the United States and gave women the legal right to have an abortion. The Republican base was furious about these things. Reagan wanted them overturned, but they were Supreme Court decisions. 
So he hires this lawyer, this, this young guy named John Roberts, and gives him an office in the Justice Department and says, okay, you have a year, figure out how can we overturn these decisions. And Roberts goes back and looks at the Constitution and looks at, reads the Federalist Papers and reads all, it reads all of James Madison's writings from the Constitutional Convention, the diaries of the Constitutional Convention, and Jefferson's rants about the Supreme Court, all of which is in my book on the Supreme Court. And he comes back and he says, you know, he writes this long memo, and I reprint actually parts of that memo in the book. He comes back and he says, you know, the Constitution says in Article 3, Section 2, that Congress can pass a law saying that the Supreme Court can't rule on something. So why don't you just pass a law saying abortion, you know, states can make abortion illegal if they want, and states, and states can practice segregation if they want. And append to the end of that law a sentence that says, this may not be reviewed, this is not subject to judicial review, this may not be reviewed by the Supreme Court. That was John Roberts' recommendation to Reagan. The problem that Reagan had was through the entire eight years of his presidency, the Democrats controlled the House of Representatives, so he could never get that legislation through. Well, right now, Democrats control both the House and the Senate. Let's pass some good old-fashioned court-stripping legislation. If you're not going to change the court, if you're not going to expand the court, which is another power, by the way, that Congress has. Congress can regulate the Supreme Court, and they can define exceptions to the power of the Supreme Court. Now, you know, uh, Biden has put together this commission, but on, you know, to look at the Supreme Court and the entire federal judiciary, problem is he's got a bunch of Republicans on his commission who are Federalist Society members. Nothing good is going to come out of it, just like nothing good will come out of a, a January 6th commission. Why? Because it's, quote, bipartisan. So instead, how about passing some legislation that says, you know, just straight up and straightforward, the Supreme Court, we are passing the For the People Act. We are giving every citizen of the United States the right to vote and to vote easily. And the Supreme Court may not review this law. It is not subject to judicial review. That's my suggestion. Okay, there's a couple of things. There's a couple of really big sticks that Democrats have. And then, of course, you know, using a special prosecutor instead of a commission to look into what happened on January 6th. Because there were crimes that set up the crimes. Back with your calls after this. Sometimes Louise and I just crave a restaurant quality dinner at home without doing all the work or driving. Well, Cook Unity is the first chef to you service delivering locally sourced meals from award-winning chefs right to your door every week. And it appears to be less expensive than other delivery options. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman with two N's or enter the code Hartman with two N's before checking out for 50% off your first week. We just received our first meals from Cook Unity and what a huge difference it is to get the best chefs in the country to bring creative, delicious meals to us and you every week. Every meal is handcrafted by chefs and made in local micro kitchens, not large production facilities. We just had the chipotle maple glazed salmon with green beans and mango pico de gallo. It had everything we love in a meal. They have all sorts of options like vegan, paleo, pescatarian, gluten-free, and more. 
Menus are posted two weeks in advance, so you have plenty of time to choose. Experience chef-quality meals every week delivered right to your door. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman, with two N's, or enter the code Hartman, the two N's, before checking out for 50% off your first week. That's 50% off your first week by using the code Hartman or going to cookunity.com slash Hartman. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Our book today is The Hidden History of the Supreme Court and the Betrayal of America by a guy named Tom Hartman. This is from the introduction, A Rebellion Against Monarchy. And it opens with a quote from Abraham Lincoln, the candid citizen must confess that if the policy of the government upon vital questions affecting the whole people is to be irrevocably fixed by decisions of the Supreme Court the instant they are made, then in ordinary litigation between parties and personal actions, the people will have ceased to be their own rulers, having to that extent practically resigned their government into the hands of that eminent Supreme Court tribunal. It's from his first inaugural speech explaining why he was refusing to recognize Dred Scott. From the time Americans wake up in the morning throughout their days, work or play, right through a full night's sleep, everything they do, touch, ingest, breathe, and use has been touched in one way or another by the Supreme Court. Food, drugs, transportation, clothes, furniture, roadways, water, septic, electricity, everything in modern life is regulated in some way, either in manufacture, distribution, sale, or use. And those regulations are allowed or disallowed, ultimately, by the U.S. Supreme Court. At home and in the workplace, Americans' lives are regulated by the Supreme Court also, whether there could be a minimum wage or unemployment insurance, how much power employers have over labor unions and employees, whether consumers can sue when harmed by products or corporate actions, and how far police and other agencies can go in prosecuting, or sometimes persecuting, individuals or entire groups of people. The court determines and defines the limits of your right to protest and your right to a free press. It has final say in everything from taxation to regulation, from public space to private space, from contraception to marriage. Both directly and indirectly, the court determines how wealth can be earned, accumulated, and disposed of. It decides how far the rich can go in exploiting the poor and working people, and whether working people can fight back. Meanwhile, America has ended up, mostly since around 1980, with one of the most corrupted political systems in the developed world, with billionaires and big corporations literally writing legislation to benefit themselves from the federal to state to local levels. As Tim Wu wrote for the New York Times in March 2019, quote, about 75% of Americans favor higher taxes for the ultra-wealthy. The idea of a federal law that would guarantee paid maternity leave attracts 67% support. 83% favor strong net neutrality rules for broadband and more than 60% want stronger privacy laws. 71% think we should be able to buy drugs imported from Canada. And 92% want Medicare to negotiate for lower drug prices, end quote. Yet Congress as a whole has not even once seriously considered any of these things in decades. The reason, quite simply, is literally billions of dollars of politically poisonous cash flowing from corporations and ideologically motivated billionaires 
into the bloodstream of our body politic. And it wasn't Congress or any president in history who changed laws to make this possible. It was the Supreme Court. Right now and throughout much of U.S. history, the ideological makeup of the U.S. Supreme Court has had little resemblance to the political makeup of our nation. In 2019, for instance, solid majorities of Americans supported a woman's right to access abortion and birth control, voting rights, a national health care system, well-funded public schools and free education through college, higher taxes on corporations to pay for infrastructure and an expanded social safety net, and regulation of corporate behavior from pollution to banking. These are issues that enjoy majority support from working Americans and American communities but not from corporate America or America's billionaires. As this book shows in parts one and two, the court has historically almost always sided with the wealthy, the powerful, and the corporate against the poor, the weak, and the individual. In many cases, these decisions have struck down laws passed by Congress and signed by the president, a process called judicial review. This book answers the core questions about the Supreme Court's decisive role in determining the fate of the planet. Why did the framers create the Supreme Court? What is judicial review, and how does it make the Supreme Court what Thomas Jefferson, post-1803, called a despotic branch? How does the history of the U.S. Constitution explain the Court's frequent decisions in favor of the wealthy and corporations? When has the Court sided with popular opinion, and how have people successfully challenged the Court in the past? How did a 20th century coalition of businesses and billionaires seize control of the American government, including the Supreme Court? And why is this now a planetary crisis? Most important, what can Americans do about all this? In the beginning, there were those among the founders and framers of the Constitution who didn't mean for the court to have this much power. John Locke wrote in his 1689 Two Treatises of Government that the main purpose of government was to make sure that, quote, no one may take away or damage anything that contributes to the preservation of anyone else's life, liberty, health, limb, or goods. It's the hidden history of the Supreme Court and the betrayal of America by Tom Harbin. We've talked about the bullying in the Republican Party. We've talked about the rise of fascism in the Republican Party. We've talked about all these, the, the, you know, the different pieces of how, how there's basically been a takeover of rationality and common sense within the party of Dwight Eisenhower. In fact, I, I think you could argue, to interrupt myself here, I think you could argue that Dwight Eisenhower actually saved the Republican Party from itself. Right. In the 1920s, the Republican Party had gone full libertarian with the election of uh, Warren Harding in 1920. And he was elected on a platform of undoing government regulation, privatizing government functions. The slogan that he used in his election campaign was more business in government, less government in business. In other words, privatize, deregulate. And his other slogan, the main one that he ran on, was called a return to normalcy. And what Warren Harding meant by that in 1920 was dropping the top 91% tax rate that Woodrow Wilson had put into place during World War I, dropping that 91% tax rate back down to 25%, which he did. So he lowered taxes, he massively deregulated the government, he started privatizing government functions, and it led straight to the Republican Great Depression, which is what it was called until the 1950s, the early 1950s. They, they basically stopped calling it the Republican Great Depression around the time Dwight Eisenhower became, was elected in 1952. And then they just started calling it the Great Depression. I prefer calling it the Republican Great Depression. To just 
distinguish it from others. I mean, we've had several right, in the history of this country. But in any case, what we find is that Eisenhower saved the party from itself by saying, we're not going to go down that crazy road. And then Goldwater came along in 64 and said, no, no, the crazy road, you know, uh, <laughs> craziness in defense of liberty is no vice. Right. I mean, he used the word extremism, but you, you get my point. And the Republican Party's back at it. They're back to trying to be essentially the old confederacy, you know, repudiating democracy and, and hating on people and using hate as a wedge issue and using race as a wedge issue and all this kind of stuff. And now we've got, this is just incredible, the guy who's the lawyer for Jacob Chainsley. Jacob Chainsley is the uh, Q shaman, the guy who, who stood at Nancy Pelosi's speaker's podium in the House of Representatives with his, you know, giant Viking horns in his face all painted and his and the fur over his shoulders. This guy's lawyer. His name is Watkins. He says his client has a, a disturbed mental state and the problem is Trump's propaganda. He says, quote, a lot of these defendants, and I'm going to use this colloquial term perhaps disrespectfully, but they're all effing short bus people. These are people with brain damage. They're effing retarded. They're on the damn, gee damn, spectrum. But, he continues, keep in mind, this is the lawyer for one of the guys who invaded the Capitol. But they're our brothers, our sisters, our neighbors, our co-workers. They're part of our country. These aren't bad people. They don't have prior criminal history. F, they were subjected to four-plus years of G-damn propaganda, the likes of which the world has not seen since effing Hitler. You've got another one who is uh, claiming Foxitis. He watched Fox News. That's why he invaded the Capitol. Over on uh, PLOS 1, there's new research that was just, it is a scientific journal, that was just published there. It's summarized over at SciPost.org about a study of Trump supporters. In fact, the head, headline, the article is by Beth Elwood in uh, PSYPost.org. Study pinpoints two aspects of pathological narcissism that predicted the intention to vote for Trump in 2020. There were actually two personality characteristics that they tested people for, and they were able to predict who would vote for Trump or had voted for Trump and who would or hadn't based on their scores on these two pieces of, the, of what is called narcissism. Now, you'll recall, I think it was Greek mythology, narcissist, the guy who was so in love with his own uh, reflection in the pond that he you know, ended up falling in and drowning or something like that. But, Narcissism isn't just self-love. It actually involves exaggerated self-importance and a disregard for the lives of other people. These are called antagonistic, the, the antagonistic facet of narcissism and the indifferent facet of narcissism in psychology speak. And if they looked at these two characteristics, the antagonistic, in other words, they, they think that oh, I am more important than anybody else in the world. 
and this disregard for other people, the inability to empathize with other people, in fact, you know, kind of almost on the sociopathy spectrum. The author of the study, uh, Dr. Matthew Yalch, Y-A-L-C-H, suggests that people with inflated self-images combined with a susceptibility to feeling undervalued were attracted to Trump's grandiose personality. In other words, Beth Elwood writes, in other words, people with narcissistic tendencies themselves might be drawn to Trump's narcissistic persona looking to defend their worth by identifying with his entitled and aggressive ways. Now let me boil this down. What they're essentially saying is that, like in every other country, we have a mental health problem in the United States. But our mental health problem is different than that in many other countries, in that we don't treat people with mental illness, we celebrate them or ignore them. Yesterday, uh, Louise was walking home and uh, alone, and a a guy, a homeless guy who was clearly a paranoid schizophrenic, started uh, through a water bottle ladder and started screaming and chasing her. I mean, these, you know, Ronald Reagan dumped 40,000 mentally ill people out of, out of institutions when he became president. And we have had this homeless problem ever since with, that has been, obviously, we, you know, there's an economic homeless problem, but there's also a mental illness homeless problem. So, number one, we ignore them. Or number two, the mentally ill people who are still functioning, they can still hold down a job, but they're nuts. They're narcissists. They have no regard for other people, and they, and they think they're the center of the universe. We have an entire political party that caters to them, that is led by a guy who is one of them. Other countries treat mental illness other developed countries. They, they offer help to people like the guy who was chasing Louise down the street. Or they offer help to the people, you know, like, like these people who stormed the Capitol building because they were, they were Trump voters, Trump followers. But here in America, <laughs> no, no, no. it's become, mental illness has become the touchstone for the Republican Party. Another aspect of what I was calling bullying earlier. These are narcissists. Amazing. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Which raises an interesting question. How do you deal with people who are actually mentally ill? If you're going to try to have any kind of you know, political dialogue or anything. Don in Worthington, Ohio. Hey, Don, thanks for watching us on Twitter Live. And what's on your mind? In your rant today, you mentioned that the uh, January 6th commission is dead. Okay, and another part is Freddie DeBoer has a column that he says that politics in the United States, and I can't pronounce the word, or or something like that. It's the word that says a wrestling match is a game in which the participants know that it's decided ahead of time. Mm-hmm. But then it goes on. In other words, what he's saying is the American public looks at politics like it's a wrestling match. I think so they're really dis- 
there's some truth to that, you know, and the kind of secondary truth that I think most people know or intuit is that whichever candidate has the most money and spends the most money or has the most support from people or entities or organizations that have a lot of money typically is the candidate who wins elections and not necessarily the candidate with the best ideas or that sort of thing, but the candidate with the most money. And, you know, which is one of the reasons why I think that you could properly define America as, you know, part democracy, part oligarchy. But I don't know if I'm speaking to the point you're trying to make or the question you were asking, Don. Well, I guess the point is, from our perspective, we see this as possibly the end of democracy. Mm -hmm. We're on the brink of the end of democracy. But is the general public thinking this is just a wrestling match? Oh, I see and, what you're saying. Uh, you know, just sit back and let, let them fight it out. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's entirely possible. And that's how our media generally deals with uh, these kinds of political debates. So, you know, it's entirely possible. Don, thank you for the call. David in Monterey, California. Hey, David, what's on your mind today? Thank you. I got a little thing written out here. It says, years of a very successful propaganda machine has brought us Trump and where the Republican Party is today. Right. Anything that goes against that propaganda is a lie or false news. All my family that believes in that propaganda slowly cut me out. We live in an echo chamber. Even my social network has become an echo chamber, which is a real problem. We don't want to live in an echo chamber. We want to hear different ideas, points of views. We I agree. Want, we want to this is the social media algorithms at work. Yes. And my family, the real Trump supporters and friends, and, you know, I'm an anti-war person. The people that are mm -hmm. for that, for those wars, have all cut me off to live in their little echo chamber. And everything else is a lie, no matter what. It's a real problem here in America. I'm so sorry to hear that, David. That's got to be just so disheartening. Well, yeah, well, most of my family are not that right-wing, <laughs> yeah. so it's not, you know, it's a few. So it's just, it's yeah, just some of them. Really yeah, bad. I get it. Yeah. David, thank That's you for good. the call. Thanks for, uh, and your, I think your perceptions are straight on, uh, you know, spot on. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. With higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, all into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. It's accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. 
CarMax, the way car buying should be. Life could change. This was my piece that I published over at HarmanReport.com on Saturday. And it's titled, Life Will Dramatically Change Under Brutal American Oligarchy. And my point is that the Trump presidency gave us kind of a perspective, an insight, a, a short view, as it were, a glimpse of what American life could be like under a totally authoritarian government. He never got us there, but he sure was trying, you know, selectively deciding which press can come to a White House press conference and calling out the press and all these kind of things. And there's, we're seeing this right now played out in, in governments around the world where authoritarian strongmen Countries that at one point were democracies, authoritarian strongmen have risen up and largely taken over. I would say that uh, Duterte in the Philippines, Bolsonaro in Brazil, Netanyahu in Israel, if he can use this war to pull off enhancing his political power and keeping himself out of prison, probably falls in that category. Certainly Erdogan in Turkey, Putin in Russia, Orban in Hungary, Modi in India, and Duda in Poland. All of these guys increasingly, you know, authoritarian. And, and the point is that authoritarianism, when you still have a semi-functioning democracy, as is the case with all these countries, that kind of authoritarianism is really just a midpoint. This is not how a government can function over the long term. This is always a transitional phase. You either have a functioning democracy or you have essentially a fascist state. And the way you make that transition is through the path of authoritarianism. And I'm referring to that authoritarianism in the article that I, that I wrote Saturday for HarbinReport.com as oligarchy. And in fact, this is my, my most recent book, The Hidden History of American Oligarchy, lays this out. You know, how this happens, how it works, where it comes from. And this was the sort of thing that the founders of this country, the framers of the Constitution, thought they could protect us from. And it's why they had checks and balances, and why there's two branches of Congress, and you know all these things. But back in 1911, a political philosopher by the name of Robert Michaels published a book on political parties. And in that book, he created or invented or came up with the phrase, the iron law of oligarchy, his idea that oligarchy was the inevitable result of a democracy if, if the democracy failed to put into place strong guardrails to protect itself from being overwhelmed by the very rich. That in every single case, according to Robert Michaels back in 1911, in every single case where a country had gone from being a democracy to being basically what today we would call fascist, and what he was referring to as oligarchy, and what I refer to as oligarchy in my most recent book, in every single case, the path to that oligarchy or fascist state was through authoritarianism, and that path always was paved by very wealthy people. First gaining control of the economy through something very much like monopoly, which is what we have in the United States. The name an industry that's not dominated by fewer than five companies. You can't do it. Right. I mean, you know, whether it's 
even obscure things like, you know, arts and crafts, you know, airplane manufacturing, flying, you know, uh, transportation, pick a, you know, restaurant, pick a, pick an industry. And that's what you see. And this really, this corruption of politics happened when the guardrails were taken off in 1976 and 78 by the Supreme Court. And, you know, in their Buckley and Bellotti decisions. And then, of course, they doubled down on that in 2010 with Citizens United. And there's a series of steps that, you know, that you see in these oligarchic movements as they're moving toward fascism, crushing the rights of women while glorifying a macho ethic. We heard that the Supreme Court is now going to decide whether, you know, it's okay to, to basically ban abortion in the United States. Crony capitalism, making the, the few rich and screwing everybody else. Crushing union efforts, legalizing and, and widespread promulgation of a police state, basically. Um, that that uses selective enforcement of the law in you know, the way that uh, essentially the way America polices black people. These are all the hallmarks, and this is just the beginning of it. I'll, I'll get into a few more on the other side um, of that process that we are in and we have to acknowledge. This is the Tom Hartman program. And if we don't stop this process, if we don't back this thing up, we're in for some serious problems in 2022 and 2024. So, you know, as I was saying, I want to get back to this and just parts of this list. You know, I mentioned crushing the rights of women, crony capitalism, crushing union efforts, legalizing surveillance. And the sub part of that legalizing surveillance is that the political elites get away with crimes that the average person would go to jail for. Uh, repression of religious minorities is another piece of this. The weaponization of religion as an agent of state power is another piece of this. The marginalization and demonization of minorities, particularly racial and gender-based minorities, is part of this. I mentioned selective enforcement of the laws, so you never know if you're going to be the target of state violence. Um, example, how America pol polices black people. Seizures of the courts so that selectively enforced laws and regulations are used to maintain the power of oligarchs and assuage the insecurities of their, basically their base, their followers. A huge gap, one of, one of the other characteristics of this transition between democracy and oligarchy or fascism is a huge gap between the rich and poor. And this is often accompanied by an explosion of homelessness. And again, you go back and you look at that list of countries I just laid out, and, and you'll find most of these things are characteristic of, of every one of them. Civilian paramilitaries who terrorize the population, including the, pop, the political opposition. Liz Cheney made the comment that she knew that there were a number of her Republican colleagues who wanted to vote to impeach Donald Trump the second time around. Uh, you know, when it was just irrefutable. And they didn't do it because they feared for their lives. That was her phrase. They feared for their lives. I mean, this is, this is how fascism rises to power. You have the racialization of powerlessness and poverty. Uh, again, another characteristic of a country that is making the transition from democracy into full-blown oligarchic fascism a brutal grassroots response to those who object to selective poverty, uh, typically leading to the marginalization or even the outright assassination of movement leaders, as happened to Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King and others. A false form of nationalism 
and this is a real key. I mean, the Republican Party is like totally here on this. This was the key to Mussolini's rise to power in the early 1920s. I think it was 24 that Mussolini rose to power in Italy, maybe 1925 glorifying this mythical past, explicitly covering up the past crimes and failings of the country, and, and positioning the new oligarchy that this political movement is bringing along as the, as the, the pinnacle of political evolution, and the corruption of the political process, which we see Republicans doing right now in, we now have uh, three or four states that have passed laws that say that whoever wins the election is no longer up to the voters and up to the professional bean counters who keep track of the elections, but it's now up to the Republicans in their legislatures. So, you know, that's what we have, this, this uh, corruption of the political process. Today on the Tom Hartman University Book Club, we're reading from Barbara Honiger's book, October Surprise. The October Surprise the book is about was the 1980 Reagan campaign led by Bill Casey, who Reagan later made the head of the CIA, but he was Reagan's campaign director in 1980, about their actions with the Iranian government cutting a deal where if the Iranians would hold the hostages throughout the election of 1980 to make Jimmy Carter look bad and weak, then if they won the election, they would sell weapons to Iran, which, of course, is a deal that they kept. We know of this as the Iran-Contra scandal. So I'm reading from the very last chapter. It's the epilogue, and it's titled A Kinder, Gentler Nation. President Reagan signed intelligence authorizations in 1984 and 1985, which were considered licenses to kill, according to top government officials. As we have seen, Oliver North, an Amiram Nears, U.S.-Israeli covert operations were authorized by a still-secret accord, never revealed to congressional intelligence committees as required by law, which may have also authorized political assassinations in the name of counterterrorism. We have seen that Vice President George Bush, this is the elder, met with Amiram Nir in Israel in late 1986, when he could have signed the accord with Israeli Prime Minister Shimon Peres, for whom Nir worked. Author Seymour Hirsch has charged Oliver North with being President Reagan's assassination planner. We've reviewed reports that North boasted that anyone who leaked or threatened to reveal the administration's secret Iran initiative would be killed, and that some of the North Secord Hakim team were reportedly involved in political assassinations under the umbrella of counterterrorism. Given this context, it's instructive to note what has happened to many of the individuals who were reportedly involved in or knew about the secret negotiations between Iran and the 1980 Reagan-Bush campaign, and or about secret U.S. arms deliveries to the Khomeini regime in the early 1980s. So then she goes through the list of people. Dead. William Casey, CIA director, who reportedly attended meetings in Paris, France, on October 19 and 20, 1980, with Iranian officials and agents of French intelligence to arrange an arms-for-hostages-delay deal with Iran. The morning of Casey's first scheduled under oath testimony before the Senate Intelligence Committee on the secret Iran initiative, he was struck by seizures in his CIA headquarters in Langley, Virginia, and underwent speech incapacitating left brain surgery shortly thereafter. 
Had he lived to testify, according to a lifelong friend and counsel, Milton Gould, Casey would have told, quote, the entire truth, end quote. He died on May 6, 1987. Dead. Imiram Nir died November 30th, 1988, in a plane crash in Mexico. Nir, who resigned in March of 1988, had been chief counterterrorism advisor to Israeli Prime Minister Shimon Peres. He was Oliver North's Israeli counterpart in the Near North covert operations covered by a still-secret accord reportedly signed by Perez and President Reagan, or according to some U.S. government sources, by someone at a lower level. Easily Vice President George Bush, during his late 1986 meeting with Nir in Jerusalem, when Nir briefed Bush on the Iran arms initiative. Informed sources suspect sabotage of Nir's plane when Oliver North sought to introduce the secret U.S.-Israel accord as part of the defense in his trial and conspiracy charges, The Reagan-Bush administration refused to produce the document, and the conspiracy charge was dropped. Near died two months before the start of Oliver North's trial. The truth of the final entry in Michael Ledeen's book, Perilous Statecraft, may have something to do with his timely death. Quote, insofar as anyone may have had something dramatically new to add to our knowledge of Iran-Contra, it is likely to be Amaram Near. Dead. Cyrus Hashemi. Died in London on July 21st, 1986, two days after being diagnosed as having a rare, virulent form of fast-acting cancer. Died two days after his diagnosis. According to Iranian-American arms dealer Hoshaglavi, with whom he worked on a major Iran arms-related sting operation in the 1985 and early 86, Hashemi was assassinated by U.S. government agents. According to self-proclaimed CIA pilot Richard Brennecke, Hashemi had been a participant in the October 20, 1980 Paris meeting with 1980 Reagan-Bush campaign manager Bill Casey, Iran arms dealer Haoshang Lavi, Iranian officials, and agents of French intelligence to work out the original arms-for-hostage-delay deal with Iran. Before his death, Hashemi was reported to have said that his 1981-82 U.S. arms sales to Iran had been necessary to obtain the release of the 52 U.S. hostages, released moments after Reagan's inauguration in 1981, and had been approved by the CIA, which Casey headed. Hashemi was also the instigator of the Arms for Hostages proposal, which resulted in the August 1985 tow missile shipment to Iran. Dead, the Ayatollah Mohammed Beheshti, who reportedly sent a personal representative, according to one source, Jalal al-Din Farsi, to the pre-election Paris meeting of October 19, 1980, with 1980 Reagan-Bush campaign manager Bill Casey, and according to some reports, also with George Herbert Walker Bush. Beheshti died in a bomb explosion at Islamic Republican Party headquarters in Iran on June 28, 1981. Dead, William Buckley, CIA station chief in Beirut. And it continues. October Surprise by Barbara Honiger. Welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you. So as I, as I was saying, and just, just to to highlight this, this transition, there is a transitional process that governments go through from being functioning democracies to being essentially fascist oligarchies. And in the middle of that process is the rise of a pseudo-nationalism, a a new authoritarianism. I mean, we're seeing it played out in the United States right now, hugely, I mean, in real time. We have already seen it play out in countries like Hungary and Russia and the Philippines and Brazil. You know, they're a little farther along than we are in, in most cases. 
other countries, well, for example, in France right now, you're seeing the rise of, the, of Marine Le Pen, who is basically France's Donald Trump, and there's a very good chance she's going to win the next election. And then France goes down. Right. And to a large extent, this is almost, not almost, this is always driven, at least according to Robert Michaels back in 1911. And I've seen nothing to contradict that over all these years. I write about this in, in The Hidden History of American Oligarchy at some length. That this, this corruption of the political process, deciding which votes get countered and which don't, so that the, the whole voting process becomes a charade. We now have four states that have instituted this, made it law, where the Republican legislatures get to decide which votes will be counted and which votes will be ignored. This false nationalism that celebrates a mythical past and papers over the, the past failings of the country, which is another way of preventing future you know, positive movement of the country, that is a key to it. We're seeing that right now in the cancel culture happening over on the Republican Party, canceling Liz Cheney, rewriting what happened on January 6th. We've had now a number of member, Republican members of Congress going, oh, it was just a normal day. You know, it, you, you would have just thought it was tourists visiting the Capitol. Right. Civilian paramilitaries who terrorize the populace, which are, you know, obviously we're seeing here, but also terrorize the political class. See, the first step in moving a country from democracy to fascistic oligarchy, the first step is causing the people to no longer trust their government, to believe that their government can't function, can't do things. And that first step was taken by Ronald Reagan in his inaugural address, January 20th, 1981. When he said, government is not the solution to our problems, government is the cause of our problems. That's the first step toward fascism. And the Republican Party has been pushing this as hard as they possibly can. If Biden can get through his American jobs plan and his American families plan, and, and if he can push these through via reconciliation, there's a good chance he'll do it. Then maybe we can slow down the Republican rush to fascism. And obviously, if we can pass the For the People Act, H.R. 1, which is going to require blowing up the filibuster, then we can stop fascism dead in its tracks, or at least three quarters of it. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.